Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Um, my name is Patrick Sampson. I um, work, uh, I'm a faculty at Cornell, um, but I, I'm mainly at the uh, Brooklyn campus. Um, and I'm, uh, I've been there since uh, a year ago. I did uh, my training at LIJ uh, for residency. And then uh, I did a fellowship uh, in endourology uh, at University of Washington. Um, so today I'll be talking about uh, surgical stone disease. All right. Um, thank you for being here with us, Dr. Sampson. We're all excited um, to hear about this. Um, so one question I think I had for you is that uh, a lot of times as residents, in terms of what to look for in a fellowship, um, what are some things that you think are important um, and some things that residents may not understand that they should consider during that process? Yeah, so I think uh, for me, the most important thing is um, if you feel that uh, you, you, you should, uh, your personalities should match uh, with your fellowship director and the people that you're gonna be working with. Because um, unlike residency, uh, fellowship, it's an apprenticeship. So you're gonna be spending a lot of time uh, with your fellowship director, uh, and you know, so, and some fellowships you're working with more than uh, just one attending. Uh, so I think that's incredibly important that you get along with them really well. And it's hard, I know it's hard to uh, figure that out on an interview day. And hopefully, um, uh, for my interviews, uh, I usually spend like a day or two with them, uh, so you get a better sense of uh, what type of people they are, um, and if you can get along with them on a day-to-day -day basis. Excellent. Um, well, we really appreciate you being here, uh, and I'll let you take it away. Thank you so much. All right. Okay, so here are the objectives of my talk. Uh, it's a lot to go through, so I'll try to highlight some points uh, that are covered in core curriculum and the AUE guidelines. Uh, hopefully this will be a good reference for when you guys study for the boards. Uh, I'll go over some uh, clinical pearls uh, I've learned in my young career uh, from my many mentors in endourology. So I have no disclosures. Uh, before we go into the nitty gritty of my talk, I just wanna share a few uh, personal opinions. So as a surgeon, you should always look at the images yourself uh, before you call uh, your attending about uh, the consult or scrub into a case, uh, you have to have you re reviewed the scan yourself. Uh, radiologists do make mistakes uh, and they're not the ones operating on the patient. Uh, so it's in your best interest uh, to review the images. Uh, number two, I would argue that uh, what makes a great surgeon is not just being technically skilled, but also having uh, the ability to, to de determine uh, the best surgical approach or, or non-surgical approach. Uh, a wise man once told me, uh, you can train a monkey how to operate. Uh, so we are not just monkeys, we are thoughtful and caring doctors. Uh, we are not technicians. So we'll start with uh, radio radiographic evaluation. Uh, so uh, these are the different possible imaging modalities for stones. Uh, for the majority of cases, the gold standard is the um, non-contrast CT scan. The KBX ray was a prior standard for kidney stones. However, it, is, it does not allow you to see radiolucent stones, uh, stones overlying the bony pelvis, such as uh, the uh, distal stones, uh, distal ureteral stones, uh, and stones that may be obscured by overlying bowel gas. Uh, you also get very limited information about the collecting system anatomy. Uh, the IVP does add some information about anatomy and functionality, uh, but this is only really used in the trauma setting or during a shockwave case when, when it's difficult to see the stone uh, in the ureter. 
moving on to uh, ultrasound, uh, which is a good but not a great uh, modality for imaging stones. It does give us a good idea of the stone burden, uh, the anatomy, and the presence of hydrodephrosis. Uh, looking for ureteral jets can give us an idea about obstruction, although uh, this is not uh, foolproof. Uh, there's no ionizing radiation with uh, ultrasound, which is why um, it's the initial study used for uh, pregnancy uh, and pediatric patients. The downsides are that it's operator dependent. Uh, it's poor at visualizing ureteral stones. Uh, imaging quality is limited by body habitus uh, and the sensitivity is limited uh, for smaller stones. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is that ultrasound uh, tends to overestimate uh, stone size. Uh, so there's a, a study published about 10 years ago comparing uh, stone size from CT scans uh, and ultrasounds in the same patient um, that showed the uh, ultrasound overestimates stone size by about two millimeters. So this, this is another reason why you should look at the films yourself. A study out of University of Washington uh, showed that measuring the width of the posterior acoustic shadow uh, is a more reliable measurement than the width of the stone itself. Uh, they also found that if the stone does not cast a shadow, uh, this indicates that the stone is uh, likely less than four millimeters in diameter. Uh, moving on to non-con uh, CT, which is a gold standard, like I mentioned before. Uh, it gives accurate information about uh, stone burden, location, a collecting system and perinephric anatomy, uh, as well as stone density and skin to stone distance, which are all useful for uh, surgical planning. Uh, for example, uh, stone density and skin to stone distance has been shown to correlate with treatment outcomes for shockwave lithotripsy. Uh, so these parameters can help you set more realistic expectations for the patient. Uh, just remember, skin to stone distance is the uh, average of the three measurements uh, between uh, the skin and the stone at 0, 45, and 90 degrees. Uh, the major drawback for CT is radiation exposure, uh, especially if you have a patient with uh, recurrent stone uh, episodes. Uh, one conventional CT scan delivers 10 to 20 millisieverts of radiation, depending on the machine um, and depending on the protocol that's used. Uh, this is compared to about uh, 0.6 to 1.1 millisieverts for uh, just a plain film uh, KUB x-ray. Uh, Low-dose protocols have been developed to try to limit exposure without uh, significantly compromising on sensitivity. Uh, just like conventional CT, there's a range of radiation dosage for low-dose CT. Uh, but the consensus for the upper threshold uh, of effective dose seems to be uh, four millisieverts. Uh, Low-dose CT is actually the preferred modality for patients uh, with BMI of 30 and under. <clears throat> One study showed that um, in these patients, sensitivity was 95% and specificity was 97% uh, for detecting ureteral stones while the effective dose was reduced down to 1.6 to 2.1 millisieverts. Uh, Low-dose CT, however, is not recommended for uh, patients with BMI above 30. Uh, so we'll quickly review uh, acute renal colic. Uh, like I mentioned before, uh, the non-contrast CT scan is a standard uh, modality for imaging for stones. Uh, ideally, the patient should be in the prone position uh, to differentiate uh, UVJ stones from free-floating bladder stones. Uh, ultrasound is the uh, initial uh, imaging modality in pregnancy uh, and pediatrics, like I mentioned before. Uh, so recently, uh, there's been a push to limit radiation exposure, uh, which I, I agree with. Uh, a uh, multi-specialty, multi-institutional consensus paper uh, that was published last year, <clears throat> stated that uh, CT can be avoided in uncomplicated cases of renal colic in the ER, especially in patients uh, younger than 35 years old. Uh, these patients uh, need to have um, 
adequate pain relief uh, and no signs of sepsis. Uh, similarly, there's a uh, randomized controlled trial uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, a few years ago uh, that had 2,700 patients randomized to either uh, point-of-care ultrasound, uh, radiology ultrasound, or a standard CT. And these, <clears throat> these patients came in with acute uh, renal colic. Uh, it showed that there was no difference in uh, high-risk diagnoses, serious adverse events, pain, uh, pain scores, return to ER visits, uh, or hospitalizations. Uh, there was a significant reduction in six-month cumulative radiation exposure in the, radi uh, in the ultrasound groups. Uh, so the caveat to these findings is that they did not look at which patients needed stone surgery uh, or how this impacted surgical management. So a CT is still needed if uh, you are planning on having, um, offering surgery for the patient. So urgent uh, drainage is indicated in the setting of uh, an obstructed ureteral stone and signs of infection. <clears throat> uh, patients with worsening AKI, uh, an obstructed solitary kidney, bilateral obstructing stones, intractable pain, or PO intolerance uh, would also benefit from uh, ur urgent drainage. Uh, so drainage can be done either by uh, ureteral stent or nephrostomy. Uh, there's only been one small uh, RCT that compared the two and it showed uh, comparable outcomes. So it really just depends on the scenario. Is IR available uh, or is it faster to get the patient to the OR um, uh, with us for a stent? Uh, is the patient too unstable for general anesthesia for a stent? Uh, or if the patient has a, a large UPJ stone or a large renal pelvis stone, and it seems like the patient's gonna need a PCNL in the future, um, I'm usually able to convince uh, IR to put in uh, a PERC tube. <clears throat> uh, if the patient lacks all of the uh, previously mentioned complicating factors uh, and the stone is less than uh, or equal to 10 millimeters in diameter, the patient is a candidate for observation uh, and trial of passage. Uh, so initial management, as you guys know, involves uh, hydration uh, and then a PO challenge to make sure that they're able to hydrate themselves. Uh, First-line therapy for pain control is NSAIDs. So there's a meta-analysis meta published a couple years ago uh, that showed uh, NSAIDs were at least equivalent uh, to Tylenol and opioids in relieving renal colic 30 minutes after being given. Uh, NSAIDs uh, also required le less rescue analgesia uh, compared to uh, either uh, opioids or Tylenol. Uh, <clears throat> and furthermore, uh, there was less nausea uh, and vomiting with NSAIDs. Uh, there have been contradicting papers uh, published within the last decade uh, or so on medical expulsive therapy. Uh, but it's important to note that the AOA guidelines do recommend its use, uh, especially for distal ureteral stones. Uh, the, the reason why we use uh, uh, Flomax or Tamsulosin uh, for stones is uh, because there are alpha-1 receptors within the uh, epithelium of the ureter and, the, and with the highest concentration uh, in the distal portion of the ureter. Uh, Tamsulosin, which uh, you guys know, is a selective alpha-1 receptor antagonist <clears throat> and has been shown uh, to be helpful in larger ureteral stones and improving stone expulsion rate, uh, shortening time to expulsion, reducing pain uh, while passing a stone, and decreasing the incidence uh, of requiring a subsequent intervention. Uh, one thing to keep in mind uh, is the risk of intraoperative floppy iris syndrome. Uh, which can be associated with uh, alpha-1 uh, receptor blocker use. Uh, Tamsulosin should be avoided uh, in these patients if, uh, if the patient's planning uh, for or contemplating cataract surgery. Or at the very least, uh, you should have a conversation uh, with their ophthalmologist. Patients should be offered surgery if they do not pass the stone after a trial passage of four to six weeks or if they're, if they're requiring multiple ER visits um, or significant narcotics in that time frame. 
patients <clears throat> uh, patients should have a fall of uh, imaging unless the patient can physically prove to you that the stone is passed, either if they took a picture or if they bring in the stone themselves. <clears throat> uh, there's a study out of uh, uh, MassGen uh, that showed that 26% of patients who were asymptomatic uh, after a trial passage uh, still had a stone in the ureter on follow-up imaging. And they followed these patients up uh, about five to six weeks. So they got their imaging five weeks later, they still had a stone. Uh, depending on the patient uh, and stone factors, uh, and considering doing um, either an ultrasound or KV or a CT um, uh, to look for a persistent uh, stone and, and silent obstruction. All right, so we'll, we'll talk about uh, selection of management. So this is a diagram I put together based on the AOA guidelines. Uh, for surgical management of stones. Uh, this should just be uh, a guideline, um, but there are other factors that are not taken into consideration here, uh, like uh, patient comorbidity, uh, patient preference, uh, stone composition, stone density, uh, and uh, skin to stone distance. Uh, but uh, not every stone requires surgery. Uh, for patients with asymptomatic, non-obstructing calocele stones, uh, observation with periodic imaging is a re reasonable option. Uh, patients should be counseled uh, that there is about a 15 to 30% risk of a symptomatic event in the next few years, uh, and about a 50% risk of progression. Uh, although a smaller portion will actually um, end up having surgery. If a patient does elect for, uh, elect for surveillance, I typically recommend repeat imaging uh, within six to 12 months, uh, depending on uh, how active their stone disease is. Uh, if you guys uh, really wanna be precise about um, being able to predict their uh, uh, risk stratification, uh, there's a prediction tool developed by the Mayo Clinic called the Rocks Nomogram. Uh, it predicts the five and 10 year risk for uh, a recurrent asymptomatic stone event. Uh, in certain situations, uh, asymptomatic stones should be treated, uh, such as those in uh, airline pilots, uh, women who are planning uh, pregnancy, uh, patients with recurrent UTIs, uh, or patients expected to have uh, poor access to medical care. All right, so um, we'll talk about shockwave lithotripsy. So this is a, a typical pressure pulse generated by the lithotripter. Uh, first, there is a, a steep uh, positive pressure front followed by a negative pressure of about 10 megapascals. Uh, so repeated shock, uh, shocks cause stress uh, on the stone causing cracks that grow and eventually cause uh, fragmentation uh, or comminution is another word for it. Uh, there are several described mechanisms uh, for stone communication uh, that you guys should be aware of, although um, uh, having a deep understanding is probably not absolutely necessary for the exam. Uh, the first mechanism is spalling, uh, which is a result of the shock wave reflecting from the rear of the stone. Uh, this generates a large tensile strength uh, inside the stone. Another mechanism is uh, squeezing, uh, which occurs because of the difference uh, between the speed of sound propagation within the stone and that uh, within the surrounding fluid. Uh, this difference produces a circumferential force uh, on the stone causing tensile strength that can actually split the stone. Uh, a third mechanism is shear stress, which is generated by transverse waves. Uh, as the shock waves pass into the stone, uh, objects that have layers, such as most kidney stones, have, uh, are particularly susceptible to shear stress. Super focusing is the amplification of stresses within 
the stone because of its geometry. Uh, the internal waves, uh, shock waves, converge on regions of high stress. <clears throat> uh, cavitation refer, uh, refers to the formation and collapse of uh, small bubbles in the surrounding fluid uh, that are created by the negative pressure wave. Uh, when the bubbles collapse, they form uh, microfluid jets um, that hit the stone surface. The last mechanism is uh, dynamic fatigue, which refers to the process of uh, accumulated damage throughout the course of treatment. Uh, there are areas of imperfection in stone that develop more and more stress, uh, causing micro cracks until the uh, stone is eventually fragmented. <clears throat> there are three types of shockwave generators. Uh, the first uh, is EHL. Uh, EHL involves a, a spherically expanding shock um, shockwave that is generated by uh, an underwater spark discharge. Uh, there's an ellipsoid uh, reflector uh, that focuses the wave on the stone target or uh, the F2. Uh, so EHL is very effective at fracturing stones. The disadvantages are that uh, there are large uh, fluctuations in pressure from shock to shock, uh, and also um, it has a short electrode life. Uh, the classic Dornier uh, HM3 lithotripter, uh, which you guys may have uh, heard of, is, uh, is an example of an EHL machine. The second type of generator is uh, the electromagnetic lithotripter, which produces uh, a magnetic field uh, in either uh, a flat uh, plane or a, a cylinder to generate the shockwave. Uh, these are more uh, controllable and the shockwaves are more reproducible than EHL. Uh, they also have a longer generator life than EHL. Uh, and because these lithotriptors uh, introduce energy into the body over a larger skin area, it causes less pain. Uh, but because of the high energy density um, at the F2 focal point, there's also an increased rate uh, of subcapsular hematoma. Uh, and compared to EHL, uh, stone, break, break, stone breakage rates are lower, uh, although um, depending on the study, this doesn't always uh, translate to lower stone free rate. Piezoelectric lithotriptors uh, use a large array of small ceramic elements uh, to produce planar shock waves um, uh, with directly converging uh, uh, shock fronts. Uh, these lithotriptors have improved focusing accuracy, a uh, longer service life, and because, uh, because of the lower uh, energy density at the skin entry, there's potential for um, uh, anesthesia-free uh, surgery or procedure. Uh, however, uh, the actual energy delivered to the stone per shockwave is much less than EHL. So every patient that I'm considering doing a uh, and as well on gets a KUB. Even stones that don't show up on that scout film on the CT sometimes will be visible on a dedicated KUB. <clears throat> so don't uh, rule out shockwave just because you can't see it on that scout film. Uh, there are certain techniques that have uh, been shown to improve outcomes uh, for shockwave lithotripsy. Uh, appropriate coupling. Um, refers to the uh, coupling medium, which is uh, either gel or oil uh, in between the patient and the treatment head. Uh, you want to avoid forming any air pockets uh, uh, in the coupling medium uh, that might uh, weaken the energy being transferred into the patient. Uh, Water-soluble lubricants have been shown to be a, a great coupling agent. So slower shock frequency at either 60 uh, or 90 shocks per minute have, um, have been shown to have higher success rates and lower analgesic requirements uh, when compared to 120 shocks a minute uh, in a randomized control trial. Uh, using a ramping up protocol 
where you start with uh, the lowest power setting and then gradually increase as the treatment progresses. Um, can reduce renal injury and also uh, improve fragmentation. You should image frequently to monitor progress of fragmentation uh, and make sure the stone is still uh, within that focal zone. <clears throat> you don't, so you don't really need to use the maximum number of shocks, whether it be 2,500 or 3,000, uh, if it looks like uh, the stones are completely, uh, the stone is completely fragmented. Uh, using general anesthesia allows for better control of respirations uh, and has been shown to have, our, have higher success rates compared with um, IV sedation. Uh, routine stenting should not be used in shockwave lithotripsy. Uh, there's a meta-analysis that showed uh, no difference in stone free rates for renal and ureteral stones, uh, whether or not uh, they were stented. Uh, patients who were stented did have um, higher incidence of lower urinary tract symptoms. Uh, you should consider giving tamsulosin uh, post-operatively and consider percuss uh, percussion, diuresis, uh, and inversion therapy to help uh, patients uh, pass their fragments. Uh, something that I learned at University of Washington was uh, taking a two-minute pause uh, after the initial 250 shocks. Uh, this pause allows for renal vasoconstriction, which was found uh, to protect the kidney from injury in animal studies. <clears throat> I know that in most residencies, you, you probably have very little exposure to shockwave. Uh, so when you graduate, you're already biased, biased against using shockwave for your patients. Uh, however, it's in, it, when used in the right setting, in the right patient, shockwave is actually a good treatment modality. So stone size is the greatest prediction or predictor for uh, shockwave success. Uh, in general, shockwave is uh, a good choice for uh, stones smaller than 10 millimeters. Uh, even in lower pole stones, it's a reasonable option <clears throat> um, to use uh, shockwave lithotripsy. Uh, in a randomized control trial between uh, shockwave and ureteroscopy for lower pole stones 10 millimeters or smaller, uh, there was no significant difference in three-month stone free rates or need for secondary interventions. Uh, they did find that more patients in the shockwave group said that they would choose the same procedure again. So shockwave is still a reasonable option for uh, non uh, lower pole kale seal stones 10 to 20 uh, millimeters, uh, but the success rates are poor uh, in stones greater than uh, 20 millimeters. Uh, the location in the kidney matters. Uh, lower pole stones have lower success rates, as you can imagine. Uh, this, this is probably related to the dependent location of the lower pole, uh, which would um, hinder the passage of um, uh, fragments. In a randomized study between shockwave and PCNL, uh, for patients with lower pole stones less than three centimeters, stone, stone free rates were significantly lower for uh, those who had shockwave lithotripsy. In the uh, ureter, shockwave is less effective in the distal ureter. Uh, when compared with ureteroscopy. Just a reminder, the distal ureter is the segment of the ureter below the sacroiliac joint. Uh, stone density and skin to stone distance has been found to predict uh, success of shockwave uh, as well. Uh, as you can see, uh, success rates uh, were significantly lower uh, when stone density was above uh, 900 Hounsfield units, uh, and, the, and the skin to stone distance uh, was greater than nine centimeters. <clears throat> uh, these results were independent of stone size, location, and BMI, uh, at least in this particular study. Uh, the AOA guidelines do not recommend shockwave for patients with suspected cysteine uh, or uric acid stones. Um, this is an in vitro study done at Indiana University that showed that um, cysteine, uh, cysteine stones were the most resistant uh, to shockwave uh, fragmentation, uh, followed by brushite stones, uh, and then calcium oxalate uh, monohydrate stones. Uh, 
Uh, patients on anticoagulation should not undergo shockwave, although there's data uh, to show that um, if the patient's taking a low-dose aspirin, it's not an absolute contraindication. Uh, pregnancy, um, having an active UTI or and distal ure um, ureteral obstruction uh, are other contraindications. Uh, although having a horseshoe kidney is not an absolute contraindication, uh, having the high insertion of the ureter in these patients uh, does lead to lower stone-free rates. So um, talk about complications. Uh, one of the most common complications is uh, renal contusion or hemorrhage. Uh, if you scan every patient after shockwave, you'll probably see a hematoma, uh, but these are uncommonly uh, clinically significant. Hematoma rates uh, depend on the type of lithotripter and the settings used. Uh, Steinstrass uh, is another complication. Uh, Steinstrass refers to the accumulation uh, of obstructing fragments in the ureter uh, after a shockwave. Uh, the risk of this occurring cor correlates directly with uh, uh, stone burden. Uh, so this is, this is something that you really should uh, counsel your patients on, especially if uh, you're treating larger stones. Uh, there have been reports uh, that patients may develop high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, and renal function impairment uh, after shockwave, uh, but these haven't really been shown in long-term studies. Uh, moving on to ureteroscopy. Uh, over the past few decades, there's been an, a steady increase uh, in the share of uh, treatments being done through, uh, via ureteroscopy uh, com in comparison with uh, the downward trend uh, of shockwave. Um, so we'll, we'll start with semi-rigid ureteroscopy. Uh, the semi-rigid ureteroscope is generally used for stones uh, below the iliac vessels. Uh, it's good to know, uh, know the caliber of the scopes uh, that, uh, uh, that you guys have at your institution. Uh, but in general, the distal tip uh, of the semi-rigid scopes uh, range from 4.9 to 7.5 French, uh, while the proximal shaft range <clears throat> ranges from uh, 8 to 9.5 French. Uh, if the ureteral orifice looks a little bit narrow, I usually um, calibrate the intramural ureter with a 10 French uh, Dulumen catheter uh, to passively dilate it. Uh, I found that uh, most of the time, this will give me just enough space to get the semi-rigid scope in. Uh, in terms of indications, uh, flexible ureteroscopy is appropriate for uh, stones, uh, that are proximal to the iliac vessels, although sometimes you can use a semi-rigid uh, for mid-ureteral stones, depending on the patient's anatomy. Uh, lower pole stones, uh, 10 millimeters or smaller, uh, or non-lower pole stones, 20 millimeters, 20 millimeters or smaller can be treated with ureteroscopy. Uh, larger stones, uh, you can also treat with uh, ureteroscopy if PCNL is contraindicated. In terms of uh, technique, is, uh, the use of a safety wire is recommended by uh, the AOA guidelines. Uh, pressurized saline is used uh, to help with visualization, either um, with a pressure bag or manual pump. Uh, and the AOA guidelines do not recommend a routine stenting after every reteroscopy, uh, because uh, obviously because of the uh, urinary symptoms and pain uh, that stents are associated with. Uh, stents should be used in cases uh, with significant uh, ureteral edema, uh, if you're suspicious of an injury of the ureter, uh, if, you, if the patient has a stricture or any other anatomic abnormalities that may um, impede stone clearance, if the patient has a solitary kidney or impaired renal function, or if you're planning a second procedure. Uh, so in my young practice, I've probably only done uh, stentless procedures on 5% of ureteroscopies. Uh, although I think in general, most people uh, and myself included are probably uh, overdoing it with stents. 
so there are a variety of flexible e-reader scopes uh, available in the market. <clears throat> so uh, there are fiber optic scopes uh, that tend to have a narrower profile and better maneuverability. Uh, there are digital scopes that have really good optics. Uh, there are now a few disposable single-use scopes uh, and the cost-benefit uh, of these uh, scopes really depends on the institution and how often uh, your scopes are needing to be serviced. Uh, so get to know the technology at your institution uh, it, and if you if you have multiple types of scopes available uh, try to learn uh, the characteristics of each one. In general, the distal tip of these scopes range from 5.2 to 8.7 French. The working channel is 3.6 French, which fits uh, instruments up to th uh, th uh, 3 French. Keep in mind, unlike um, uh, the semi-rigid ureteroscope, there's only one working channel uh, in which the both the irrigation fluid and instruments are are, are, are passing through. Uh, so your ability to irrigate uh, will be affected when you have, uh, when you're using larger instruments. Okay, so let's talk about ureteral access sheaths. <clears throat> uh, the main benefit of access sheaths is the reduction of intrarenal pressure. Um, this does uh, uh, lead to reduce uh, risk of sepsis, uh, which was shown in this uh, large prospective study by uh, Dr. Traxer. Um, uh, he compared uh, outcomes of ureteroscopy with and without the use of ureteral access sheaths. Uh, this, uh, this study also showed that there is no significant improvement in stone free rates with access sheath usage. And one reason why some urologists may shy away from access sheaths uh, is the risk of ureteral injury, which is actually uh, pretty common. Uh, in an earlier study um, by Dr. Traxer, their uh, high-grade injuries were found in 13.3 uh, cases in which access sheets were uh, used. Uh, high-grade injury uh, was defined as uh, one that involved more than uh, just a ureteral mucosa, uh, like the ones uh, in the second and third images here. Uh, luckily, uh, there's a prospective study in Cleveland Clinic uh, that showed that um, out of 56 patients with high-grade ureteral injuries, uh, um, uh, only one developed uh, a stricture. So let's talk about uh, laser lithotripsy. Uh, the most common, uh, commonly used laser is the holmium laser. Uh, the fibers range from uh, 200 to 1,000 uh, microns in, in, in width. And if you're using a flexible ureter scope, uh, these scopes can accommodate um, fibers that are 200 to 365 microns. Uh, the variability uh, in laser settings uh, depend on um, the available power from the machine. Uh, so commercially available lasers range from 40 to 120 watts. Uh, newer laser machines uh, also have an option of uh, changing the pulse width, uh, which is the length of time uh, which a single pulse is emitted from the laser. Uh, so long pulse width is typically used uh, during dusting, which I'll talk about later. Uh, since there's less uh, retropulsion of the stone, uh, this allows you to paint the stone edges uh, without having much uh, movement uh, of the stone itself. Uh, there's also less fiber tip degradation or burn back uh, in the long pulse setting. Uh, the short pulse mode is typically better for fragmentation, uh, although you'll see more retropulsion of the stone. Um, so you may not want to use short, short pulse uh, when you're uh, in the ureter. Uh, there are typically two main approaches for lasering a stone, first of which is uh, fragmentation uh, and extracting. Uh, typically when you fragment, you want to uh, use a moderate uh, energy setting uh, and low frequency. Uh, short pulse width uh, can also improve efficiency 
uh, although uh, there's more retropulsion, like I mentioned before. Uh, you want to start at the lowest, oh, let's see here. You want to start at the lowest uh, um, necessary energy setting and rate uh, to preserve the fiber tip uh, and minimize uh, retropulsion. You can always increase the settings depending on how the stone uh, is behaving throughout the case. Uh, and since the fragments are larger when using these settings, uh, you'll need to basket uh, the stones out. And using an access sheath is useful in improving your efficiency when going in and out. Uh, I typically uh, use um, uh, this, uh, uh, this technique, fragmentation, uh, in denser stones like uh, calcium oxalate monohydrate stones. Uh, I try my best to extract every single fragment uh, when there is a suspicion uh, for an, uh, an infectious stone. I really think uh, that um, basketing is an underrated skill. Uh, if you're making 30 to 50 passes in and out of the kidney uh, in a case, uh, those three seconds can really add up. Uh, sometimes you may grab a fragment here uh, that, that looks a little bit too big uh, to fit in the ureter uh, or the sheath. Uh, but if you just open up the basket slightly as you pull uh, down the ureter scope out of the collecting system, uh, the fragment will rotate lengthwise and you can often uh, just pull the fragment out without needing to laser it. <clears throat> a lot of times, uh, especially in cases with a lot of stone burden, th there'll be a pile of dust here in the renal pelvis. Uh, you're not really sure if there's significant fragments. You can just drag your basket when it's half open to see if you're catching anything. Uh, so this is uh, the Frogger, which is a fun trick I learned in fellowship, uh, which is basically just uh, using the hand irrigation to flush and quick uh, flush the pump and then quickly close the basket. Uh, when the fragments are smaller, it's just it's more efficient to open the uh, the basket halfway so you're not catching too many fragments. Uh, and sometimes you might uh, the fragments might hide uh, in the fornix of the calyx. And if you just uh, let the bas the basket bend in that direction, you can often grab the fragments even if you can't see the whole thing. Uh, so the other approach to lasering is uh, dusting, uh, which is uh, getting more popular as uh, newer lasers are able to offer uh, much higher uh, pulse rates. Uh, the typical settings are low energy uh, and high frequency with a long pulse width. Uh, you also want to defocus uh, the fiber tip, which means uh, having the tip just slightly off of the stone to minimize retropulsion. Uh, I usually use this technique uh, when the stone is softer, like um, uh, apatite stones or uric acid stones. <clears throat> uh, if the fragments are too small to basket or if they're too big uh, for the patients to pass, uh, you can use the technique called popcorning. I'm sure you guys uh, have heard of this or done this. Um, uh, this is done by positioning the fiber tip in the middle of a calyx uh, and, and keeping the, fiber, uh, the laser activated uh, so that um, the fragments bounce off of the walls and then come in contact with the laser fiber. Uh, this is usually done at a moderate pulse energy and a moderate to high um, a frequency. Uh, fragments that are uh, one millimeter or smaller are, are generally small enough to pass. Uh, and you can use something that's already in the collecting system, like your safety wire, um, uh, as a reference. Uh, so there's been an ongoing debate amongst uh, endourologists uh, on whether dusting or uh, fragmentation is uh, more uh, efficacious. <clears throat> uh, this recent uh, multi-center study uh, showed a higher stone free rate uh, in the basketing group or the fragmentation basketing group. Uh, um, but that was only shown in the uh, univariate analysis, but not the multivariate analysis. Uh, it was also not a, uh, exactly fair comparison since the uh, stone size in the dusting group was uh, bigger. Uh, 
despite this, they, they did find that basketing took almost 40 minutes longer uh, on average, uh, but there's no difference in complication rates or need for uh, a second intervention. <clears throat> Although uh, many residents may feel uh, like ureteroscopy is a junior level case, uh, these cases can go bad pretty quickly if you're not careful if you, or if you don't know what you're doing. Uh, I won't go through these in detail uh, since Dr. Gupta already gave uh, an excellent talk uh, on this a few weeks ago. Uh, stents, okay, so stents are the uh, bane of a stone patient's existence. Uh, most patients who have a stent put in will have some sort of discomfort uh, or um, uh, either pain or urinary tract symptoms. Uh, there have been lots of efforts in trying to figure out um, uh, how to reduce stent discomfort, but the best way um, to prevent it is to not place a stent to begin with. Uh, after placement of the stent, uh, you wanna make sure that it's the appropriate size uh, since it's been shown uh, in small studies uh, that uh, stents uh, that cross the midline in the bladder cause more urinary symptoms. Uh, <clears throat> Belladonna op and opium suppositories uh, given at the time of surgery have been shown to improve um, uh, quality of life scores uh, and decreased pain uh, with urination, uh, although other measures of pain uh, and urinary symptoms uh, uh, were not improved. Uh, NSAIDs and opioids can reduce flank pain but doesn't uh, really address the urinary symptoms uh, and uh, alpha blockers uh, uh, are meant to reduce the uh, ureteral spasms by decreasing uh, and also uh, decrease voiding pressures in men, um, which reduces the flank pain that men feel uh, when they urinate with a stent in place. Uh, anticholinergics can help uh, with the irritative voiding symptoms uh, and uh, uh, phenazopyridine or pyridium can help with the uh, urinary burning. Uh, so last uh, topic, uh, PCNL. Uh, so PCNL uh, is generally reserved for renal stones larger uh, than two centimeters, uh, lower pole uh, stones greater than one centimeter, uh, complex stones like saghorn stones, um, or, or stones in patients with uh, complex renal anatomy. <clears throat> uh, stones that are relatively shockwave uh, resistant, uh, like cysteine stones or brushite stones, uh, or stones that uh, are um, uh, that need complete clearance of every little fragment, like struvite stones. Uh, these are uh, also good candidates for PCNL. Uh, these are contraindications for uh, PCNL. Uh, although uh, there is a study um, out of LIJ that showed that uh, if a patient's on a baby aspirin perioperatively, it was not associated with uh, more significant uh, postoperative bleeding. So in the US, uh, uh, obtaining access for PCNL uh, is done by IR in the majority of cases. Uh, there's data that shows uh, that when IR gets access for these cases, there tends to be uh, higher complication rates. <clears throat> Although um, I don't think it's fair to blame IR uh, for this since they're not the ones that are treating the stone. Uh, so the takeaway message uh, is that even if you're not the one physically putting the needle in, you, the urologist, uh, should be uh, involved in um, the process of planning uh, for the access. So there's so many ways of getting access. Uh, the traditional method is uh, fluoroscopic guided, uh, either bullseye or triangulation. Uh, you can use, use ultrasound. Uh, some people use uh, CT guidance. Um, uh, more recently, people are using endoscopic assistance. And in terms of uh, positioning, patients can be in the prone position, uh, supine, prone, uh, prone split leg, or modified lithotomy. Uh, whatever method or position that you're using, um, just learn it well, uh, since each method does have its pros and cons. 
Uh, and no matter which method you use, a few principles should be followed. Uh, ideally, you want to get into a posterior calyx since uh, uh, this aligns, the posterior, going into posterior calyx uh, aligns with the plane of Brodel uh, and limits uh, potential bleeding. Uh, the needles, uh, sorry, the needle should be parallel to the infundibulum uh, and point towards the UPJ. Uh, ideally, the, the needle should pass through um, uh, the papilla or fornix of a calyx, <clears throat> although there is a recent study out of Greece that showed that the risk of bleeding was not increased uh, when getting access through the infundibulum. Uh, however, you should not uh, directly puncture into the renal pelvis uh, because of the risk of bleeding. <clears throat> so upper pole access. Um, so upper pole access, obviously there's uh, the risk of pleural injury, um, but um, if you have a stag full staghorn stone, uh, upper pole access is uh, graded, uh, is, is more uh, effective for uh, stone clearance. Uh, also, uh, uh, complex lower pole stones, uh, large stones going into the proximal ureter and horseshoe kidneys uh, would uh, benefit from uh, upper pole access. Uh, always review the pre-op CT uh, in uh, three views uh, to get a better understanding of the anatomy uh, and, and plan for the best angle uh, for the needle trajectory. <clears throat> uh, so, uh, Fluoro-guided access is the most commonly taught method in the U.S., or at least amongst urologists. Uh, some advantages uh, are that you can visualize your instruments pretty well, uh, uh, and you can visualize uh, the stones, uh, as long as they're radio-opaque. Main drawbacks are radiation exposure. Uh, often it's difficult uh, to identify the posterior calyx. There's, like, there's many different ways of uh, doing that with fluoroscopy, but sometimes you could still get tricked. Um, also, you, you can't really see the structures around the kidney with fluoro. Uh, the main advantage of ultrasound is that um, there's a reduction in radiation exposure when using ultrasound. Uh, the posterior calyx is uh, also uh, easily identified uh, since the, cal the posterior calyx is the the one that's closest to the probe. It's the one that's uh, at the top of the screen. Uh, you can also visualize the structures around the kidney that you may not see on fluoroscopy. So this was a, a patient with a cluster of stones in the lower pole. Actually, let me pause this. Um, uh, as well as another cluster uh, in the upper pole. And you can see this is the 12th rib right here, overlying the kidney. Um, so I knew I was going to need to puncture uh, the patient twice, at least, um, because of the complex anatomy. However, uh, when I put the when I slapped the ultrasound probe on, I, <clears throat> I, I saw that I would have punctured right through the pleura. You can see the uh, a pleura a sliding sign right here, um, and 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 I may have gone through the lung if I wasn't careful. Uh, so the disadvantages uh, for ultrasound are that it's not yet widely taught uh, in urology residency or fellowship in the U.S. Uh, it's difficult to visualize wires and dilators, so you still you do still need to do um, use some fluoro uh, during these cases, um, and it's uh, difficult to get uh, access if you don't have a dilated system. So I use a combination of retrograde ureteroscopy and ultrasound to get access. Um, so with the patient in uh, the prone split leg position, I have access uh, from below and above. As you can see, I use two monitors, uh, one for the cystoscope and ureteroscope from below, and one for the nephroscope up above. Uh, doing it this way does require uh, a capable assistant uh, or co-surgeon um, so it's nice to be able to work with the residents on these cases. So um, I typically put up a sensor wire using rigid cystoscopy from below, uh, then put up a uh, super SIF wire alongside, and then I put a, a ureteral axis sheath in uh, over that super SIF wire. Um, then the flexible ureteroscope is advanced 
uh, into the kidney. Um, and then uh, the stone is directly visualized. <clears throat> then I maneuver the scope to find the posterior calyx. And um, you can identify that by following the air bubbles. They will go up to the posterior calyx. You can also look uh, for the posterior calyx um, under ultrasound, which is the one that's close to the probe. Uh, here I'm passing the needle under ultrasound. You can see um, it under direct vision coming in right there. So I didn't have to use any fluoro for this portion of the case. Uh, glide wires and pass through uh, through the needle trocar and then the basket is uh, used to pull uh, the wire all the way down uh, and outside of the access sheath and then secured with a clamp. Uh, the scope is then uh, passed back in uh, so that we can directly visualize advancing uh, the balloon dilator, inflating the balloon, uh, and then passing the access sheath. So throughout this whole process, I haven't used any fluoro other than um, at the beginning of the case when I was uh, passing the uh, ureteral access sheath. Uh, stone extraction. So the rigid nephroscope is a standard instrument for PCNL uh, and allows for the use of um, a variety of lithotripsy devices. Um, so this is from the AOA guidelines. Uh, flexible nephroscopy is recommended uh, in guidelines uh, in the guidelines since it's been uh, uh, shown to increase uh, stone free rates and uh, reduce the need for secondary interventions. Uh, at the end of the case, the traditional method of drainage uh, is a uh, nephrostomy tube. Uh, these tubes can improve uh, clearance of blood uh, from the collecting system, uh, provide a reentry tract for a second stage procedure, <coughs> um, and allows for, um, if, you, if you're planning on it, a post-operative anterior nephrostogram. Uh, however, uh, uh, there is a trend uh, towards tubeless procedures or quote-unquote tubeless procedures. Uh, the AOA guidelines state that in patients undergoing uncomplicated PCNL who are presumed to be stone-free, uh, placement of nephrostomy tube is optional. Uh, Dr. Hampton, just want to let you know we got um, about a minute to finish up before we... Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll go quickly through the rest of these slide, uh, slides. Um, so yeah, so this is the criteria for a tubeless PCNL, although the criteria is changing. I'm, I, I, you know, they don't have to meet all of these for me to do tubeless. Actually, I'm a big fan of tubeless. Uh, and it's been shown uh, when you do tubeless, they have shorter hospital stays, shorter convalescence, less pain, less risk of urinary leakage. Um, although they, uh, they do have uh, worse quality of life scores, uh, because of the stent that you that you usually have to put in. Uh, so this is probably my last slide. Uh, complications of PCNL probably warrants its own one-hour talk, so I won't go too much into it. Uh, so infectious complications are most com uh, the most common, uh, followed by hemorrhage, pleural um, injury, visceral injury, uh, and uh, luckily, a death is very rare. Um, I just want to show, do I have like a few more seconds? <laughs> um, yeah, we we should start soon. So if, if this okay. is said, that'd be great. Actually, I'll just, uh, I just want to just mention uh, these two, um, two upcoming treatment modalities. I mean, they're still under investigation. Um, ultrasonic propulsion for uh, this is this is work being done at University of Washington um, uh, for stone fragments, uh, residual stone fragments after shockwave or uroscopy. Uh, basically, it's a non-invasive way to, to help patients pass stones. And then burst wave lithotripsy, which uh, they're doing human trials on, um, and it's it's basically um, here. I'll just show you the uh, the video. So this is in a pig bladder. Uh, this is just a 30 second clip where you can see uh, 
so the uh, technology is a little bit different from shockwave. It's got a lower amplitude and higher frequency. Uh, so uh, it basically just, um, it, you can compare it to like dusting a stone from the outside. All right, so that's about it. Uh, 